Hello, my name is John Lovering, and I am the host of Audio Theater, heard from 6 to 8 p.m. on Tuesday evenings. On the last Tuesday of each month, from 6.30 to 8 p.m., I produce a live storytelling broadcast called True Tales Radio. Our announcer is Amy Antonucci, and our MC is Pat Spaulding. Each month we have a different theme and invite members of our Seacoast community to come on in and tell a personal experience true story centered around that theme to our in-studio and on-air audiences. You are about to hear a rebroadcast of True Tales Radio that has been edited to one hour. If you would like information about the show or on how you become a storyteller, please email truetales, T-R-U-E-T-A-L-E-S, one word, at wscafm.org. We are also on Facebook at True Tales Radio. Thank you and enjoy this hour of local storytelling on Portsmouth Community Radio, WSCALP 106.1 FM. From Selma, Alabama, would you please welcome storyteller Miss Catherine Tucker Windham. I can't believe I'm 92, and but I am, and uh, my father said to me, but he says, said, when you're building your life, the most important things are the four L's. And the first L is listening. And it's a rare thing these days, listening, listening to the human voice, listening to one person talking to another person, listening. We have forgotten how to listen, how to sit down and talk and have a good time listening. My daddy said, listen, God gave you two ears and one mouth. And he expected you to use them in that proportion. <laughs> and the next L is learning. You have to learn something different all your life. Don't ever quit learning. And laughing is the third L, he said. We've all got to laugh. Laugh at ourselves. Laugh at something every day. The world is a magical, wonderful place, he said. But we need to laugh together. Don't laugh at people, my father said. You laugh with people. And you can never hate anyone you've really laughed with. Laughter binds people together. The most important L is loving. Loving. Said God put us here to love each other, to enjoy each other, to help each other, to laugh together, to learn together, to listen together, but to love each other. And there's nothing that says I love you more pleasantly and more plainly than storytelling. Everybody here has stories that you need to tell, and now is the time to do it. Tell stories and tell each one with love, ending with I love you. I love you. Thank you. And here we go. Thanks to Catherine Tucker Wyndham speaking at the 2010 Alabama Storytelling Festival at the age of 92 about the importance of stories. Welcome to True Tales Radio, coming to you live from WSCA's West End Studio, 909 Islington Street, Portsmouth, New Hampshire. True Tales Radio is a place for local people to share their true stories with our on-air listeners and in-studio audience and to come and be a part of this local, independent community radio station, which we're all so grateful to have here in the seacoast of New Hampshire. Here's how our show's going to go tonight. So we have six people who are going to tell us stories, and they're all local folks who are bringing us something true from their own lives. Everyone has ten minutes to do so. 
And there is no system of we're not going to rate people or judge people or vote or anything like that. That has nothing to do with why we're here. Um, we really just want everyone in our Seacoast community to have the opportunity to come in and share their stories. I, who am Amy Antonucci, am turning it on over the mic here to Pat Spaulding, RMC, who will introduce each storyteller to you tonight as they come up. Chuck Curtis lives in Exeter. He's a retired store manager for a local major auto parts company who now enjoys devoting his time to many activities such as woodcraft, writing, acting, recording, and working in community radio. His story tonight is titled, Many Masks in Our Lives. Thank you, Chuck. I want to apologize ahead of time. <clears throat> I'm having a little problem with my throat tonight. Um, the mask that we wear is what the theme of tonight's stories are about. I'm going to refrain from using the words we or you or us because in doing so that means that I'm assuming that you are all feeling and thinking the same things that I do about masks. And I can't assume that. That wouldn't be fair to you. So I'm going to use the word I, the mask that I wear. The tradition of dressing in costume for Halloween is both European and Celtic roots. On Halloween, when it was believed that ghosts came back to the earthly world, people thought that they would encounter ghosts if they left their homes. To avoid being recognized by these ghost people would wear masks when they left their homes after dark so that the ghosts would mistake them for fellow spirits. To keep ghosts away from their houses on Halloween, people would place bowls of food outside their homes to appease the ghosts and prevent them from attempting to enter. Halloween was a time for making mischief. Many parts of England still recognize Halloween as mischief night, when children would knock on doors demanding a trick or treat, and people would disguise themselves as witches and ghosts and kelpies and smunkies in order to obtain food and money from the nervous householders. Now, there are two types of masks that I'm aware of. The type you can see and touch and feel, put on with elastic band or tape, whatever. And then we have the type that are invisible. And we have uh, a lot of people in the theater who wore masks for one reason or another, mostly to be scary. But just to remind you of a few of these people, we had Captain America, Captain Marvel, the Joker, the Lone Ranger, the Green Hornet, Spider-Man, Zorro, the unknown comic who was on the Gong Show, if you remember that, the Catwoman, Chainsaw Massacre, Phantom of the Opera, Beetlejuice, Hannibal Lecter in Silence of the Lambs, Jason from Friday the 13th, Darth Vader from Star Wars, and some famous bank robbers. They all wore masks, and for different reasons. And of course, then we have the uh, baseball player and his young uh, Polish friend, uh, Batman and Rubinsky. <laughs> and uh, 
Thank you. <laughs> we had one, anyway. Some of the purposes of my wearing visible masks to protect my identity, to entertain and amuse others, to protect myself from injury, like if I'm playing baseball and I'm the catcher, I need to wear a mask. If I'm playing hockey and I'm the goalie, I need to wear a mask. Protect myself from germs. Protect myself from dust particles. I can wear a mask for play acting or for scaring other people or to administer oxygen to myself if I have to do that. So, um, some of the reasons why I may, we I may wear an invisible mask, also known as putting on a front, uh, which is kind of an appropriate saying because I don't know of anybody who wears a mask on the back of their head. It's putting on the front for fear, embarrassment, shame, want to be accepted, don't want to appear or sound immature, uncaring, selfish, scared, foolish, silly, or uneducated, or for my own secret amusement. We all want to be accepted. We want to be liked. We want to do the right thing. We want to say what we think people expect us to say and do what they expect us to do. Some of the places that I wear my invisible masks out in public, at parties, at reunions, at work, in the doctor's office, at a job interview, in a restaurant, in church, out on a date. It's okay, hon, I'm just going by memory. <laughs> the only time when I'm completely without any kind of mask at all, whether visible or not, is when I'm alone. And I think we all share that. Um, as I say, I wasn't going to use the word you or we or us, but I think some of this stuff you can relate to. Um, when I'm completely alone, whether at home or maybe I'm just taking a walk in the woods, I might act real silly, sing in the shower, laugh loud, hard, and crazy like a little kid. I might curse profusely when I stub my toe on the leg of the coffee table, you know, the, the one that's been sitting in the same spot for the last 15 years. I might drink straight from the fridge water jug or from the milk carton. I might eat my macaroni and cheese right out of the pot that I just cooked it in. Maybe I'll make crazy faces in the mirror or I'll walk around the house naked. Or I might shamelessly pick my nose, scratch my butt, burp, belt, and pass gas all at the same time and not even care about it. <laughs> I may not shave or comb my hair. I might dance to rock music even though I'm, I really don't know how to do that and I might chew loudly without closing my mouth. So, And I might really rinse the dishes that I just ate off of, wipe them dry, and then put them back in the cabinet while I'm giggling about my uncanny ability to think of ways to save time and energy and dislocate my shoulder while patting myself on the back. <laughs> when I was still in grammar school, yes, they had schools back then, um, I had three or four dollars that I had earned from raking someone's yard and I went down to the store in South Berwick called the Snack Bar. Now in here he had a snack bar where you could get a hamburger and a chocolate malt, but he also had little other doodads on the shelves in there <coughs> for sale, excuse me. He had a mask on the wall. It was a rubber mask, the most beautiful mask I'd ever seen in my life. Not because it was a pretty face, but it was the way it was constructed. It was heavy duty rubber and it conformed to the face. 
In other words, it was round. It wasn't a flat mask. It was even had the chin that would tuck underneath their own chin, and, and it was form-fitting, and it was just incredible. And when you would make faces, the thing would, would bounce up and down like this, and really, really was, was quite a sight to see. My father thought it was incredible after I bought it, and he borrowed it to take it to work to show some of his co-workers. And shortly after that, the grammar school had a Halloween party, and we were supposed to dress up as something or other. <clears throat> so I went looking for the mask, and my father told me that one of the guys that borrowed the mask did not bring it back, and he doesn't know where it is. So here I am. I want to go to this party. I don't have any more money to buy another mask. So, um, I put on my roller skates, tied a long rope around my waist, quacked like a duck, and went as a pull toy. <laughs> Thank you. All right, Justin Bailey, you're up next. Justin lives in Nottingham. And he's returning to True Tales Radio to inform us that he has successfully found paid employment. <laughs> Congratulations, Justin. We're proud of you. Not only that, but he now buffers his former downtime with school, learning to play the drums, and occasionally volunteering for other stuff. Tonight, he'll tell us more about his time at The Haunt, which I'm sure he'll explain, and about his character Big Hank in the story... What a time to be a goyle. No, a goyle. A goyle. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Hello again, WSCA. It's been a few months, and seeing as this month is probably my most active and favorite, I thought I should come back because I have a few stories here and there. I apologize again for the use of a script again. It's, uh... As a good majority of people, I believe, didn't use them, and I probably wouldn't need one if I had actually bothered to memorize this stuff or wrote the script before today. But I find that scripts are good at tethering me down when I ramble, and it limits the chance that the FCC will look at the station sternly just because I talk like a sailor. <laughs> now, from the outset, the title of the story being What a Time to Be a Ghoul, and with those with decent memories remembering that I said I worked at a haunt, it would be surmised that I will be talking about said haunt, and what do you know, I am. <laughs> but don't worry, this isn't going to turn into some kind of pitch for the haunt. I don't got tickets or leaflets and you, or what not to disperse. No, just a handful, of, just a little bit of stories here and there, and, you know, some other stuff. But first, an introduction. The Haunted Overload is the is a haunt that has been owned and operated by Eric Lowther for, depending on who you ask, around 10 years to his entire life. It, as he was a fan of home haunts and did one himself, which grew and grew and grew, until he had to move it from his backyard to Copple House Farm in Lee to where it is now at Demerit, Harm, Demerit Hill Farm in Lee. At in this time, the hunt has been recognized by the industry as being one of the best in the country, uh, competing with hunts that have been in the game for decades. I mean, just last Saturday, we pulled in around 2,000 people in one night, the majority being from <coughs> the majority being from people who have signed up for specific times. It is quite an undertaking. We uh, we be we begin building when the snow melts, so around March, and we keep working at it until opening day or the day of. We have huge mannequins, giant structures, and all sorts of zigzaggy paths that confuse even people who work there. 
And after it's all said and done, the hunt gives 10% of our gross profit and gives it to the CVHS, and I will man- mangle this pronunciation, Kachiko Valley hum- Humane Society. Last year, we were able to give them 15 grand, just to give some of you an idea of the scale. Ah, but I left out the most important part, the actors. Everything I brought up up to this point has been set dressing, if it weren't for the actors, right? And I hate to toot my own horn, but I believe our, the actors we got are here are pretty stellar. Because here's the thing, everyone in the haunt who acts there must think of their own character. They can't be some generic Jason, Michael, Freddy, Chucky, Ghostface, Pennywise, Dracula, Frankenstein, the Swamp Thing. They can be to an extent, but they can't just work on their own niche. They have to be something else. They can't be Dracula, but they can't be a vampire, that kind of thing. Which leads me to my my character, who I affectionately call Big Hank. He is, in fact, my second character at the haunt, but he is by far, by far and away, my favorite. The words I would use to typically describe Hank as a character I hesitate to say, so I will say that Hank is deviant. He is brutal, loud, foreboding. I was actually thinking of coming here dressed as Hank, but I decided I shouldn't for one reason or another. Craziness. <laughs> this, the scares I get with Hank go a lot of ways. You see, he has this crowbar, and I'm set up next to a propane tank. And I'm where I am, I can just go wailing on this thing as soon as people go by, and then I jump out at people and scream whatever crosses my mind. It is startling. It, legitimately, it's a tactic that I've never been a fan of in most mediums, and, you know, jump scares, but I'm, I can live with being a hypocrite. <laughs> but after I jump, here's my defense... When after I jump, I engage, you know, like I, I talk to the people, to them. I flirt. Yes, really. I flirt as Big Hank. <laughs> well, in Hank's old way, I make jokes or I make jokes or crack crack wise. It's quite a lot of fun. It goes into that kind of duality that I love about the character, this brutality and sanity and malice thinly veiled by th- Hank's opinion of himself as a ladies man, a player, if you will. But I digress. I am but one actor. <laughs> For one character in the entire haunt of characters, the actors of this haunt really come together as almost, I think the word would be family would describe it. We are, while different, united by our desire to haunt, to spook, united by the love of the season, or of makeup, or by costuming. People of all walks of life come to act here, from a bus driver to a painter, people in retail, a social worker, retirees, and People who do costuming or the arts as their actual profession. It takes all types. I could talk about the people who work, other people who work there, from the wonderful people who are able to somehow sort out the cacophony of 2,000 people over the course of four hours we call our parking crew. But I think we should actually have a story in here, so I'll give you two. One of my favorite things ever to happen was one just last year. There's a group of five people who came stumbling along in my section, and sure enough, when the timing is right, I leapt out, Hello, mistress! And wailed on the thing, and it scared them. Content with this, I just kind of slunk back into my nook and came shut in, but one came over shuffling and laughing, and some something along the lines of, Oh, man, you really got me, and placed something into my hands. It was dark in my section, so I had no idea what they, what was, what they had given me. Even after feeling around with it, I could only surmise that I think they gave me a hot sauce bottle. <laughs> Weird, I thought. But I thought nothing much of it until later on the night when I realized that I had kept the thing in my pocket. And hey, I'm in the parking lot now, so there's light. So I reach into my pocket, and I take it out, and it says, Nib Bottle, Jim Bean Bourbon. <laughs> 
Several questions crossed my mind at that point, such as, why me? Why did you do this at all? And actually, most of the questions were just variations of why. <laughs> the second story is indeed one of the, from the off hours. You see, every year or so, we have this Memorial Day campout, something like that, or something like that, where we camp out in the haunt, we watch a film or two projected onto a sheet with limited success. Basically, we were eating around the campfire when, someone, when somehow the topic changed to pastry. And from this, it was revealed that one of the people present, despite being in his mid-30s and had lived in the New England his entire life, had never had a donut. <laughs> Most people refused to believe him, but when he pressed the matter, I said in as many words, I cannot let this stand. <laughs> and I got my tired, barefoot self up and into my car and drove to the nearest Dunkin' Donuts. For as one... As one of us put it, in New England, a Dunkin' Donuts is the surest sign of civilization. <laughs> sure enough, we were within five minutes of one, and I returned with two donuts because I couldn't be bothered to correct the window person. When the guy saw that I had a bag, he couldn't believe that I actually left to, do, that I actually left to go do that. But when I confirmed it, and after severe peer pressure, we... Re, 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 uh, after severe peer pressure, we later realized it was mildly cultish. We ended up, he ended up eating a donut. I recall him saying something like, oh, okay, so it's like a hand cake. <laughs> and saying he was happy knowing what he was missing, but he had not sold him on the idea. The other thing I remember about that night was my inability to find my shoes when I was trying to leave because I completely forgot where I stashed them and I ended up, and at that point I had been awake for about a day, give or take several hours. But here's the thing, but seeing as I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm close to my warning time. I feel that I need to address a slight quandary I've been playing around with for a few years now that I fiddle around, I fiddle around with this time of year, and, well, where else am I going to ask this? It fits into the whole mask we wear thing because I enjoy being Hank. The time I get to be him, because for a brief time, I don't have to be me. A, I, I don't have to be me, a spacey retail worker slash lazy but competent college student. I get to be Big Hank, strong, proud, indulges in wrath and gluttonous intent, doesn't care at all beyond his own hierarchy of needs, doesn't hesitate to say anything to whomever. He is Big Hank. Big Hank is king. And it's wonderful. Even if the patrons don't always see that part of Hank, I understand it as his actor, as I am the one who's playing him and the one who created him. It's the thing, though. I seriously wish that I could find the proper balance between Hank and myself to further embrace Hank's uh, boisterousness when I'm not with people that I know exclusively or to be able to embrace his ability to say, whom, to say whatever to whomever without the need of a computer screen or anonymity. Perhaps I would need more... Perhaps I would meet more people this way, come out of my shell entirely instead of locking myself away into introversion where I don't force myself to do things such as this. Perhaps, well, perhaps I'm just rambling now, but I do know one thing for sure. It's quite a time to be a ghoul. Michael Lang is next up. He's another True Tales Radio alumnus. Michael grew up in Durham, New Hampshire, where he studied outdoor education at UNH. For many years, he worked as both a ropes course facilitator 
and as a wilderness guide. Now he works through his small business, the Coyotes Inkwell, as a writer and storyteller. Tonight he'll tell us a tale about his attitude of comfort and discomfort with his own unseen disability. In his story, The Invisible Mask. I'm playing my boron, my Irish drum. There are people gathered around, some of them seated on the carpeted floor, some of them dancing to the sound of the rhythm as it fills the carpeted room. As I twirl the mallet about, it suddenly, without warning, slips from between my fingers. It bounces off a knuckle, and as I fumble for it, it tumbles down, glancing off the toe of my boot, and rolls away. In an instant, the dark wood has faded into the equally dark threads of the carpet, and its silent rolling all of my senses, no longer exists. I turn to the stranger sitting next to me. He's dressed in all black. His ponytail is twice the length of my own. Hey man, did you happen to see where that landed? His face turns towards me. As though maybe he's confused or maybe a little curious. What, are you blind? Well, as a matter of fact, yes. <laughs> did you see where that landed? There's an awkward pause before he reaches into the void to retrieve the mallet. My mask has claimed another victim. In the stranger's defense, though, this is not a normal mask. Most masks cover the face, or at least the area around the eyes, but mine, mine is invisible. It's intangible. I'm not exactly what people think of when they think of someone who's blind. I don't carry a white cane. I, I don't really need one, at least not yet. I don't wear dark-tinted glasses, even on bright sunny days. The only ones that I own are for mountaineering and hiking on glaciers and high mountaintops. The stranger offers the mallet, offers it to my outstretched hand. So, so you're really blind? Well, mostly. Without conscious effort, I start to mimic the voice of Miracle Max from The Princess Bride. Only mostly blind. Well, all blind, you know, all you got to work with is shadows and shapeless forms, but mostly blind, mostly, you can still partially see. <laughs> the man in black begins to laugh. He, too, has seen this film, and his laugh is not awkward or hesitant or even embarrassed. It's a genuine laugh, the type of laughter one makes when a friend has made a joke. And by the end of that night, he and I are more than strangers. My mask did not always help me make friends, though. There was a time in my life when I hated being different. I hated having two eyes that did not work the right way. And so I did everything in my power to hide my disability. Whenever I would trip over an unseen object or walk into an open door, <laughs> I'll be here all night, folks, <laughs> for my next trick, the water fountain. This worked so well that no one in my high school knew that I had a vision impairment. I actually had a teacher once claim that I was faking it. He told my mother during a parent-teacher conference that he thought I could see perfectly. There's nothing wrong with him. He can see the board. He can see the text. I wasn't there to hear how that conversation ended, but I'm quite certain that his comments brought out the stereotypes of my mother's Irish heritage. <laughs> it's months after I've met and befriended the man in black. Perhaps a whole year or more. My girlfriend and I are down in Boston, visiting the Museum of Fine Arts. And as we walk together, hand in hand, 
through the glistening hallway. I look ahead and I can see this form somewhere ahead. It's at about chest or shoulder height. We draw closer and it slowly takes shape. It's a brass fixture of some sort. A brass handle, a brass doorknob. Wait, a floating doorknob? I've only pondered this question for a moment when suddenly my ears are filled with a thwack and I stumble back a step or two. Oh, oh God, are you all right? The universe suddenly makes sense again. The museum's doors are made of glass, and they have a cleaning crew who is second to none. <laughs> I'm fine, I insist. How's the door? To my amazement, it's not cracked or shattered from the force of my impact. We tour the rest of the museum, being more careful for floating doorknobs. And then we spend the afternoon walking through Boston. As we walk along the street, my arm is around her, her arm around me. To everyone who passes us by, we seem normal enough. What they don't see are the silent cues and signals that pass between us. How she moves her body closer to me or further away. The gentle nudge this way and that. A little more left, a little more right. It's not exactly the traditional technique for sight guiding, but it gets the job done. And it's a good thing, too, for there are some days when I look ahead down the road. The cracks in the pavement are nothing more than streaks of black amid a sea of gray. That's magical, she says. What? I'm bewildered by her comments. No, hear me out. Just, just listen to this. Think about it. All right? When anyone else looks around, they see the world as it is, and that's all. But you, when you look around, you see what could be there. And you don't know what it is until you step on it or until it makes sound. I never really thought of it that way. I'd always thought I was supposed to be afraid of going blind. But to embrace it, to enjoy it, that's wondrous. As we walk on that day, I'm reminded of the first time I took a colorblindness test. I was about eight years old and the doctor put the hard-covered book into my hands, opened it to the first page. It was like a Monet painting gone wrong. It was this sea of speckled dots all over the page, different shades of green. Now, Michael, tell me what number you see in this. I stared at it. Do you see a number? I see a sailboat. What? No, no, right, right here is the mast, and there's the sail billowing the wind. We got the bow, the stern, the, the tiller hanging off the back. Michael, do you see a number? What number would you like me to see? <laughs> I looked through every page of that book, and I did not find a single number. But when I got to the page that was all shades of red, I saw this amazing dragon in flight laying waste to the village below him. For some reason, I don't think the designers of this test were really thinking about children with overactive imaginations. Weeks had passed since our encounter at the Museum of Fine Arts, and I find myself in the line of a bustling buffet. There are people milling all about, all sorts of people. It's like looking through a kaleidoscope. All the different colors, moving this way and that, streaking into view, then out, blending into focus for a moment, only to trickle away once more. Their voices are like songbirds, flittering around a feeder on a warm July evening. But to really embrace that chaos, and to enjoy it, to take notice of the different colors and not try to make sense of them. When a car speeds by any of us, our eyes don't tell us it's a speeding car after all. They tell us what color it is, whether it's gleaming in the sun or not. 
Our ears hear the sound of the engine roar. We smell the exhaust. We feel the wind as it passes by. But it's our brain that puts all this together and transforms it into a speeding car. Experience, assumption, knowledge. These are the things that shape the world around us. And so it is as I stand in this buffet line. I smell the scent of grilling meat. The crackle and pop of fat sizzling. Ah, a hamburger, don't mind if I do. And over there, the flash of a metal spoon being raised up and vigorously shaken over a plate. For a moment I can see the blobs of white clinging to it and the splotch as it falls to the plate. Ah, mashed potatoes are on the menu. I move about gathering this and gathering that, then making my way to the table where my friends are waiting. Across from me sits the man in black, my girlfriend to my side. Our party is completed by a fourth member, the girl who lives down the hall from my apartment. She's a friend of my girlfriend's. As I take my seat at the table, she's staring at me. No, she's staring at my plate. Perhaps it is the mask that I've worn all these years, or perhaps it is my upbringing. But I don't really worry about what food fall on my plate or where. I'm not a fussy eater. As long as it tastes good, it's fine by me. If it's nutritious, that's all the better. <laughs> but she does not have this opinion. She plays by different rules, and I look at her now with, What? What have I done? Your food is touching. <laughs> In her world, foods are not allowed to mingle. But that makes no sense. She's eating shepherd's pie. Shepherd's pie is nothing but meat, vegetables, potatoes with pie. I gesture to my plate. Look, potatoes. The mountainous mass of misshapen potatoes. Meat. The haphazardly made hamburger clinging to the slope of Mount Potato, ready to slide down in like an avalanche. Meat. Vegetables. The carrots and peas strewn around like sheep and cattle grazing in the valley below. The slice of pie that has exploded over everything with morning dew of drizzled apple filling. Pie. I dip my fork into the unknown and enjoy the combination. And at that moment, a scream of horror fills the room. My mask has claimed another victim. Perhaps I should apologize. Perhaps I should tell her that I did not mean to tear down the walls of segregation between the four basic food groups. But no. No, this tastes really good. I think there are people who would pay some serious money for apple-glazed potatoes. Get Gordon Ramsay on the phone. I've got a recipe for his Manhattan restaurant. <laughs> this mask that I wear, it's changed so much over the years, and I've worn it for so long. It's not really a mask anymore. It's more a part of me. Call it Zen. Call it a philosophy of Akuna Matata. No worries. But I accept it. I accept whatever comes. Perhaps my eyesight will stay the same. Perhaps my disorder will progress further. Maybe I'll be blind someday. I don't know. But it's not worth worrying about that. I'd rather enjoy what I have and enjoy what I have to look forward to. Perhaps that is the real mask. Perhaps being comfortable with oneself and enjoying the good 
with the bad. The Invisible Mask. Thanks a lot, everybody. And he does it all without tripping over the mic stand. Yeah, that was so smooth. Then he knocks over his water bottle. <laughs> well done. Your invisible mask has made you quite the writer and storyteller, Michael. So next on True Tales Radio, we have Pat Spalding up. She is a writer and storyteller from Rye, New Hampshire, who's been telling tales locally since the early 80s. She's also a camper and a procrastinator who likes the outdoors, but who takes far too long to pack her things and get out of the house. (laughs) Pat's been married, single, and is now a majorette with the leftist marching band. She is happy to live in this vibrant Seacoast community where she totally loves being the MC of our True Tales radio program. Her story tonight is titled... My father taught me how to fall. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) I'd like to dedicate this story tonight to James Ouellette, who couldn't be here because his father died recently. So, James, if you're listening, this is for you. It's nighttime. I'm walking on top of the cement wall at Hampton Beach, keeping pace with the red taillights of slow-moving traffic. On one side, the broad expanse of sand and dark ocean. On the other side, the neon and noise of the casino. I am part of both worlds. I am strong, confident, unafraid, and I am four years old. Taller than my mother, who walks next to me on the sidewalk below, her hand reaching up to hold mine. I try to wiggle from her grip to run on top of the wall, but she squeezes harder. My mother always protective, won't let me go. She hangs on tight to ensure that I will not fall. So I follow my father. I am nine years old, skiing in my father's tracks down Mount Senape, skis parallel, knees bent, weight on my heels. I lean into each turn behind him, cutting the same big swooping arcs across the ski slopes that he does. Dad is fast, but smooth. He lifts off moguls and lands with practiced grace, spraying snow into the air as he skids to a stop. I jump off moguls and land on crossed skis, spraying snow into the air as I skid across the slope in a heap. You okay? Dad offers his hand to help me up. Yeah, I'm fine. I shake the snow out of my goggles. He leans down to reset my bindings. Let's go, I tell him. You first. My father leads the way. When dad loses his balance, he doesn't resist gravity by awkwardly trying to maintain a standing position. He just lets go, trusting his body to know what it needs to do, trusting the snow-covered ground to catch him. I admire my father's easy declines and graceful landings, but his best falls are the big ones. When he loses control, or at least it looks like he does. I've watched his skis flip up over his head as he cartwheels into a snowbank. I've watched him get up, face full of snow, laughing. Those are the falls I want to learn. And I do. Decades of falling and getting up again have gone by when one winter, Dad, now in his 70s, and I are cross-country skiing through the woods to get to our lakeside cabin. It's early April. 
New England has just been clobbered by three major snowstorms in two consecutive weeks, followed by a succession of warm, sunny days. We need to shovel off the roof so it won't collapse under the weight of all that heavy, wet snow. There's no road to the cabin, that's why we're skiing in. Dad has been breaking trail for the better part of a mile. I figure he must be getting tired, so I offer to switch positions. Why don't you let me do some of the work for a while? He shrugs, steps aside, and lets me scoot past. No sooner do I push ahead when both of my ski tips slide underneath the deep snow to snag on a root. The abrupt stop launches me forward into a face plant. Splat! Just as I lift my head, my backpack flips up to whack me down again. Splat, splat. It's a double whammy smackdown. This time when I come up, glasses loaded, spitting snow out of my mouth, my father is laughing. Hard. Hey, what's so funny? Dad just shakes his head. Nice work, he says. Then takes the lead and continues to break trail. The cabin's metal roof is buried under more than three feet of snow. It's banked up to the top of the windows. Dad hands me a shovel, climbs the snowbank, up onto the roof, heads for the peak. I follow. Then halfway up, I stop to admire a slick of glistening water that covers the icy surface of the lake. Wow. Nice view from up here. Well, you better pay less attention to the view and more attention to what you're doing, says Dad. That sun's heating up the roof, you know. Yeah, but... Look at all those sparkles of light dancing across the lake. It's magical. I pick up my shovel and start to dig in. Wait a minute. Climb up here and shovel from the peak, he yells. Don't dig from the middle. (laughs) What? My question loosens an avalanche of snow that slides (laughs) down the metal roof behind me, knocks me onto my shovel. I ride it like a sled (laughs) off the roof into the air to land kaplush in a snowbank. Sunk up to my waist, but otherwise unscathed, I stand up laughing. Wow, wow, did you see that? Wow, I just rode off the roof like a ski jump to land in this snowbank. This is the second stupid, risky fall I've taken today, and I've lived through both of them. Dad looks at me, half buried in snow, pulls on his beard, assesses the path I took down the metal roof, now cleanly cleared of snow, and says, Yep, nice work. (laughs) The seasons change. It's summer. There's no snow to break our falls. Dad and I sign up to join a day trip of cyclists to pedal along the New Hampshire coast from Portsmouth to Hampton Beach and back. It promises to be an easy ride with lots of stops to enjoy the view. At 34 years old, I am one of the youngest members of the group and therefore in the lead of a line of pokey peddlers navigating the narrow, curvy roads to Hampton Beach. We travel in single file to allow room for cars to pass. On one side of the edge of the road drops down to the steep rocky cliffs into the ocean. The other side is lined with stone walls separating it from the manicured lawns of mansions. I am hugging the shoulder on a deep curve lined with a stone wall when through the corner of my eye I catch a pickup truck pulling out to the left to pass me. That's fine until I see that it's hauling a boat trailer. The trailer will not swing out behind the truck on that curb. Its front tires are rolling directly toward me. There's no room to ditch. 
The driver doesn't realize what's about to happen. Even if he does, it's too late for him to change course. I am about to be run over. Time stops. There's no time to be afraid. Something else takes over. My consciousness expands into one moment of full awareness when I let go and trust my body to execute an intentional fall. I am not a pole vaulter. I have no training for this. Yet I spring off my bike to hurl myself headfirst over the stone wall, leaving my feet behind me. Although I'm wearing a helmet, instinct tells me not to land on my head. <laughs> so, while sailing through the air, I pull that back, extending my right hand toward the ground. Then somehow, knowing the impact is likely to break my wrist and probably my arm, I quickly pull both back into my chest. I touch down on my right shoulder, tucking and rolling to the left to distribute the shock of impact across my whole curved upper back. Thump! I hit the ground on the safe side of the wall, conscious and functioning, while my bike on the other side is crushed under the tires of the trailer. Now, I have time to be afraid. The first thing I do is to stand up to assess any physical damage, none being obvious. The second thing I do is to begin swearing like someone with Tourette's syndrome, shouting out F-words, S-words, all forms of profanity <laughs> to other concerned cyclists who are now gathering around me. Whenever I've been physically frightened, my first reaction has been to jump up and swear. <laughs> I think it's some form of self-protective denial. You okay? Asked Dad. I don't know. I think so. I start to cry. Well, you're in better shape than your bike. Might take it a little easy on the swearing, though. <laughs> Dad climbs over the wall. He doesn't offer his hand, but I grab it and hold on tightly as we walk together to an opening. All moving parts still moving? He asks. I nod. You'll be okay, he assures me. Then he adds, hey, nice work. <laughs> My father taught me how to fall. <laughs> Carol Coronas is a Seacoast musician living in Portsmouth who has been firing up audiences for over a decade now, yes indeed, with her energetic delivery of music in the Balkan, Middle Eastern, Celtic, and Roots genres. She was a Spotlight Awards nominee in 2014, and last fall she released her CD, Girl from Thessaly, a collection of traditional and original songs of Greece, Macedonia, and Ireland. Carol is also a radio host of two programs on WUNH, Aegean Connection, and The Cayley Show, where she keeps alive the traditions of Greek and Celtic music. The title of her story tonight is Things That Go Bump in the Brain. Thank you, Pat. <laughs> Thanks, Amy. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, do you ever wake up from really bad dream and... Uh, 
you kind of thought about your bad dream and you still weren't awake. You were kind of still in your dream. Well, sort of happened to me about a bunch of years ago, 2005, May 9th to be exactly. <laughs> I was on my way to school and I was a school teacher for a bunch of years, retired. It's been great. But I was on my way to school and I'm in my head earlier, backing up a little bit before I left the house, felt this vibrations, kind of weird, weird sensation. Didn't pay much attention to it, but they kept kept coming and I'm thinking, yeah, okay. So I drove to school, made a 20-minute pit, pit stop, um, went into the store, had forgotten my car was unlocked, left everything on my seat, came back out, no problem, driving in, more vibrations in my hand. Get to the light about a block away from school and, um, well, the rest is kind of a blur because next thing I remember was uh, waking up and I actually I was fighting. I was just wailing. I was wailing and wailing, pounding, screaming, kicking, fighting, fighting, getting so tired and so breathless and realizing I just couldn't do it anymore. And all these people, or at least four people, I didn't feel my life was threatened, but I was so angry that they were trying to restrain me. And... Um, it just felt like a horrible dream. I said, well, i got to wake up from this dream. This is awful. I lucid dream a lot. Some of you might, too, or more of you might than I think. And in lucid dreaming, you can actually control your dreams. And so I thought, well, if I'm dreaming, I won't be able to read a word. So let's find a word and see if I can read it. When you're dreaming or when you're asleep, the left side of your brain is basically shut down. And when you see words or letters or even a clock, the clock's numbers might be scrambled, the words might be scrambled, so that you might be seeing CGYXQ, not a real word. And I'm focused in on a word, and starting to read it right to left, and um, E-C-N-A-L, and looking at it left to right, it spelled Lance. And that's the last thing I remember, when must have gone out and found myself awake, 29 hours later in Mass General Hospital. And I'm going to get back to this because that's kind of the uh, point of my story about a very special person who I met there who really, really made me see life in a different way. But I'll come back to that. I want to flash forward a year. Oh, backing up through spaces. What happened? Yes. I had a very tiny, benign brain tumor on my uh, meningia. Well, the meninges. And it was literally a meningia. I was told it was in the best possible place. If he had a bad brain tumor, it was the best kind. Um, they didn't know at the time if it was cancerous or not. My cousin and my nephew passed away from gliomas, and they thought I might have that, but they weren't sure. To make a long story short, it was benign. They took it out a couple days later. I went home Sunday, fine, complete recovery, and uh, the whole bit. But it was an amazing journey. But flash forward a year, um, and um, one day after school, talking to... One of my students who came to visit, and it just happened to be either the exact same day or the day after, May 9th, 2006, she had come in, we were talking, and I was telling her the story, because she'd heard about it, you know, and um, I'm telling her the story, I just finished a story, and in walks a former student of mine, I looked at him and said, wow, I know you, and it was still at that point, I was I was recognizing people, but the names weren't coming as quickly as they should, um, e even a year later, people I'd known my whole life, songs I'd known my whole life, I 
I would remember entirely all the verses to Lake a Rolling Stone. I would remember people who I'd known forever, but people who I'd met within the past few years, songs I'd learned within the past few years. Mm, took two or three times singing him through before I got the words. Anyway, I'm staring at this young man, and he's in scrubs, right? And, you know, he's got his surgical mask just kind of hanging off his face. He had come into the school because he was working in a nearby hospital through the school, and they were doing sort of cooperative thing. And I looked at him, and I go, whoa. And we started talking to each other, and come to find out, he was one of the um, six people I was trying, I was wailing on, literally wailing on, um, and finding out, uh, meanwhile, that another one of the six people was the father of a former student. I was friends with both the student and the father, just went to their wedding that summer, that the young girl's wedding that summer. And it's bizarre, because you're in the state, and, and, and you don't, I didn't recognize any of the people, come to find out a year later. I'd known two of them. And that was just kind of a weird sort of coincidence having all that happen on on the year after but i want to back up to um back in the hospital when i when i woke up it was weird the tube coming out of my throat people around me removing their masks and i was well i'm in a hospital okay and um i was married at the time and my former my ex-husband was with me and it was kind of nice waking up to people i knew my sister-in-law was with was there in the room and they told me the whole thing but um focus on my roommate, this wonderful woman named Mel, who was my roommate. Um, when you wake up in the hospital uh, and, uh, you know, something kind of weird's happened to you, they're going to ask you questions like, do you know the date? Yep, I knew the date. Do you know where you are? Yep, because I could see on the wall, Mass General. <laughs> but, you know, they're asking me other questions. Do you know your name? Where were you born? Yep, got all that right. And then I said, who's the president? <laughs> and I go, I have no idea, but I hate him. And I heard this... <laughs> I heard this howling coming from the other side of the room. And she's, oh, my God, they asked me that. And I said the same thing, too. And I'm like, okay. So I just had the coolest roommate. Her name was Mel Simmons. And um, sadly, she lost her battle with cancer just a couple of months later that year, July 18th. But, well, she was in the room. She was. She looked healthy. She looked, she looked fit as anything. She was running around the room laughing, cracking, making jokes. I mean, this woman just kept my spirits up. Plus, they feed you with all kinds of drugs. So when they tell you, you might have you bring it. Oh, okay. You know, and, and, but she literally got me through those, those days before and after. And um, there's a little more going on here. What, what happened, we, we kept in contact for a couple months. And then, sadly... She she passed away. She passed away, and about four four years later, maybe it was around oh nine oh eight oh nine. I was over at Cafe Nostimo um, performing, and I was just kind of hanging out in the little shop that they had, and uh, maybe it was ten. I can't remember the exact year, but these bracelets um, that I have on my hand, these were bracelets that were eventually made and sold to raise money for Friends of Mel Foundation. Backing up about, uh, another hundred spaces, Mel was a former airline attendant at, well, for um, Delta for, I guess, 38 years. And she worked up in time, up until the time she was ill. And when she would go overseas, she'd bring back all these presents. And she, she flew to Turkey a lot, Istanbul. And she brought back tons of presents for people, including these little bracelets. And she would just give them to people. That was the kind of person she was. She just gave everything she had to people. She'd come back with gifts, trinkets, give them away to people, give them away to... Um, when, when, when she was in a hospital, she gave them away to the folks working at the hospital. 
and um, it was just kind of cool when when I when I saw that I start I was oh these are cool I just looked at them and I took a couple of them off here they are yep they're cool little glass bracelets you can't see them but you know people here can see them <laughs> and um, I bought a couple of them and it, and then I read I go oh my gosh oh my gosh she was my roommate and and um, I don't know it was just kind of cool it just kind of made me think of 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 being being in the hospital and being in such a weird state you know when there's something something with your head you're not it's everything is so very surreal and I could have been so scared in there and I wasn't and it was Mel that just kept me laughing honest to God laughing and she just made me realize I think the best gift that she gave me was that you know today's all you got you don't know about tomorrow you know you might have it you might have 30 more years you might have 10 more minutes and what you got to do now for all the people around you, just just make things as nice as you can for them. Tell people that you love them, hug them, let them know that they mean a lot to you, that you're, that they are a, a very, very big part of your life. And um, I just, just can't thank her enough. And uh, her family kept in touch with me for a little bit after. And then, you know, as things go, they don't. But every time around this year, I think of that, it's a... You know, breast cancer aware month is is October. She she did have breast cancer. She was diagnosed with that about five years to the date before she passed away. And um Friday, Halloween, Pink Friday, breast cancer um every Friday in in uh October is uh Friday in support of breast cancer. People were pink and you know, there's fundraising events. But her foundation is just kind of cool. Um, I didn't want to talk about that so much. It's just the kind of person that she was. But it was a wonderful gift that she gave me. Just kind of wake up. It's time. You know, it took me a couple of years to uh, kind of ingrain it. But every October, I, I think of her. So And my mom also, who passed away from cancer a few years ago. Her birthday was October. So it's a beautiful month. It's a sad month, but it's a happy month, too. And um, again... Just that gift. Just let people know that that they're in your lives. That's so important. Thank you. Our underwriters for tonight's program are Jan Hansen, who believes in the unique value of having an independent community radio station in the Seacoast, and Pat Spaulding, who believes in stories for grown-ups and True Tales Radio and who wants to know, hey, what's your story? If you would like information about the show or on how you become a storyteller, please email truetales, T-R-U-E-T-A-L-E-S, one word, at wscafm.org. We are also on Facebook at True Tales Radio, local storytelling on Portsmouth Community Radio, WSCALP 106.1 FM. Our announcer is Amy Antonucci and our MC is Pat Spaulding.